Welcome to Grant Seeker Coffee Talks, a podcast for nonprofits to listen and learn from their peers. In this episode, we are hearing from Mark Pittman. Mark has been studying leadership for over 30 years, including earning a master's in organizational leadership. He is the executive director of the Nonprofit Academy and has a new book out titled The Surprising Gift of Doubt, Use Uncertainty to Become the Exceptional Leader You Are Meant to Be. And apparently, if you drive by Mark on the road, he'll be singing 80s tunes loud enough to embarrass his family. Today, Tammy Tilsey sits down with Mark to discuss fundraising, leadership, and doubt. Let's dive right in. Here's Tammy. Hello, Mark. Thank you for being our guest today on the Nonprofit Coffee Talk podcast. Thanks so much, Tammy. It's awesome to be here. Great. First, I want to give a quick shout out to our mutual friend, Diane Leonard. And Yay, thank, you for con- <laughs> Yay! <laughs> thank you for connecting us. We have uh, enjoyed a great partnership with Diane and her organization, DH Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services over the years. And her, her introduction was just so timely. I had just listened to your episode on the Fundraising Heyday podcast, mm. where, where you talked about how grant writers, fundraisers, and marketers are all storytellers. I really loved it. That's awesome. And, <laughs> and so, too. yeah, yeah, that dynamic duo. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so happy to have you on our podcast today. So, so many things you've done. You've written a book on fundraising. Uh, it's called Ask Without Fear and studied leadership for so many years. And I saw that it was both from direct experience as well as your work at the Concord Leadership Group. And now you're releasing this new book and it's called the surprising gift of doubt, using uncertainty to become the exceptional leader you are meant to be. So I just got my copy last week and read it over the weekend. I highlighted several areas I really enjoyed, and I think our listeners will too. (laughs) But first, before we dive into that, I want to set the stage and learn a little bit about you and how you first became interested in fundraising, leadership, and, and doubt. How how are they all connected? Well, uh, for I grew up in a weird family. <laughs> and anybody that knows my family will attest to that. I had schoolwork that I had to do because I was a student, but I also had Pittman family homework because I was a Pittman. So um, my parents were going through a phase where they were learning about a lot about um, uh, leadership and sales training and goal setting. And so and it was all skills that they kept wondering, why didn't I learn this earlier in life? Why am I only learning this in my 40s when I could have had a different? So as a early teen and even probably preteen, um, I was reading Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I was reading Norman Vincent Peale's Power of Positive Thinking, um, Frank Betgard's How I Raised Myself from Failure to Success in Selling. I was listening to uh, Florence Littower's uh, Motivational Talks and Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy. So I grew up in this culture where it was just expected that you could you could do what you wanted to do you had to set intentions you had to know your strengths and weaknesses and um so there was this expectation of that that i brought into and i actually so it's such a nerd even in college i was the honors program i was in required me to uh didn't require the same level of grades because they expected me to be in leadership and studying leadership and and actually spent four years working on goal setting as part of my scholarship to earn my scholarship i had to study goal setting and set goals and i mean yeah so it is 
it is a weird, so I, I went into life with this kind of expectation. Um, I thought I was going to, to lead, um, and I thought I was going to do a faith communities overseas, but uh, in my tr faith tradition as a Christian, but um, uh, the I, things happened that I that I didn't expect. I got married seven days after I graduated from college. <laughs> I did expect that. Like we were engaged. Okay. So it wasn't like all of a sudden Emily popped up and they're, oh, let's walk down the aisle. I happened to be in the church too. Yeah. <laughs> so there was planning, but it was not what I had like my life. When I thought of my life plan, that wasn't seven days after graduation. I thought I, that that was a curveball. It was a wonderful curveball that's been going on for 26 years now. Um, and then I get a job at the college I graduated from, which I used to make fun of people for. Um, I used to think of college as Ferris Bueller's <laughs> Day Off. And at the end of the credits, Ferris Bueller kind of pulls back the shower curtain and says, go home. It's over. And that's what I think about college. Get out of here. We, we trained you to go do great things. So get out. Um, and there I was, lo and behold, weeks after graduating, I was working in the admissions office. And uh, that led me to fundraising because what I love about leadership and when um, the pastoring I thought I was going to be doing was helping people to find their vision, mission, goals, and their their purpose. Like, what is their mission? Why are they here on this planet? Admissions at a college is that. Why are you? What are you studying? Are you a good fit? The, and we had the freedom in our college to say you're not a good fit for our school. We don't think, um, which was wonderfully permission giving because and it saved the college a lot of money and headache and the parents and families and students. If we yeah we weren't we were being really transparent and open about that. But it was weird after May 1st when they made their decision. You can't keep talking to them. You're not supposed to. You're just a creepy guy talking to them <laughs> after that point. They're either moving on to the other school that they were at or they're moving into student <laughs> development. They're not talking to you. So go away. Uh, and the development office, Bob Grinnell was at the, de the development office, who's a mentor of mine for years and years. He said, you know, you get to have those conversations with donors year round and for years. And so that was my introduction into fundraising. So I was able to take all my sales stuff that I had learned uh, in direct selling and, and all and translate it. Uh, it fit very well into, into fundraising. There were some tweaks and all because it's different, but it's similar. Human beings have been fairly consistent over the millennia as far as uh -uh. influence and all. And um, the, that was, I found actually my first speaking gigs were in 1999, translating sales material, Seth Godin's sales stuff to fundraising speak because sales was the S word when I got started. <laughs> so you didn't talk about sales. We're in development. We're not in sales. We, we develop relationships. We're not a charity. We develop things, you know, it's, and we advance stuff. I mean, words are important, but sometimes you got to take it with a grain of salt too, because we're still asking people for money. I mean, it's not yeah. just about a relationship. Nobody needs another great friend. They need to see impact with the stuff that they put the better waking hours of their life to earning money. They need to see impact with that and the values that they care about. And there's nothing wrong with that. So um, you didn't ask this, but one of the, uh, one of the things that happened is uh, I was part of this global survey of fundraising folks uh, that looked at different attitudes and fundraising in different continents and different parts of the, uh, the planet. And I tested more like a European fundraiser because for me, for fundraising transactions are central to the fundraising experience, it's not about the relationship. The relationship is incredibly essential and the fundraising, um, and, and I am all about people and helping people connect and mission and vision and values, but a donor doesn't become a donor without making a donation. Right. So, 
why are we lying about this? It's about the money. It's about the person and it's not about honoring them there. and taking their no well. But so apparently that's much more, the transaction is very central to the relationship. In my, I understand my understanding. Uh, and so that's why I, I tested more like a European fundraiser than a North American fundraiser. Because a lot of the North American fundraisers for interesting reasons are more of a, if you just develop good relationships, the money will come. And I think we have to be a little bit more honoring of the donor. My wife can't read my mind after 26 years of marriage. I don't know why a donor, I would expect a donor yeah. to know what, would you support us means? It, they don't. Would you give us 20, you know, volunteer, would you consider $10,000? Yeah. That's clear. Yeah, yeah exactly. Volunteer yeah. money, pray for you, good thoughts. Yeah. Stick a <laughs> in my car. Give you a high five. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the fundraising and all of that, it brings doubt. If you're doing sales, if you're doing fundraising, one of the beautiful things about fundraising is it forces you to be a better human because it brings up all of your triggers, all the things that trigger you and make you feel insecure and all the issues you have with money and power and, and, and all of the, the ability for you to see systemic inequities are there when you're a fundraiser and you have to deal with them if you're going to do this well. Um, so that's why I love that. Uh, I love training boards in that too, because doubt for board accidental fundraisers. Uh, most of us are accidental fundraisers. We didn't kind of play fundraiser growing up in school. Um, <laughs> so, so it, it, I love, that's why I asked without fear was such a, uh, a gift. It was uh, such a joy to write because it was helping people that didn't know how to, they didn't come into this to do fundraising. They came into this to fix problems and fundraising helps them fix more problems. So um, helping them, I didn't realize at the time and ask without fear, but it was working through the doubt. So that's why I'm love, I love the surprising gift of doubt because it really shows, awesome. it reframes doubt and uh, helps people see it, not necessarily as meaning that they're less than, but maybe, maybe, there, maybe there's a gift in this thing called doubt. I love that. I love that. So let's dig in. Yeah. Um, in, in the 2018 study that you did on nonprofit leadership, uh, the study was called The Wake Up Call. It states one in 10 nonprofit CEOs expressed no confidence at all in their ability to lead. Uh, why do you think mm. that's the case? Well, nonprofit leadership is, yeah, that was a stunning statistic. Adrian Sargent, uh, we contract with Adrian Sargent and thanks, thankfully for Bloomerang Boardable and Donor Search to help partner with Conquer Leadership Group in, in sponsoring this. The, um, what I think part of the reason for nonprofit leaders in particular is that we're often told nonprofits, we're going to run more like a business. And I get parts of that, but it isn't a business because in a business, you're the boss. If you're the executive director or the CEO, you're the boss, you have a staff, you work with your staff, and then you serve, they all serve clients. And when you serve your customers well, the customers buy more or pay more. And so it generates revenue and it becomes this virtuous loop that helps you to be able to take care of your, your staff better and helps create more customers. Nonprofit leaders aren't that at all because they're not the boss, even if they're the founder or the executive director, by the virtue of the structures of nonprofits in our culture, there's a board that's the boss. And unfortunately, the individual board members think they're sometimes the boss <laughs> when they're not. It's the board when it's meeting that's the boss. But there's this weird abdication of authority or power because you can't always make those decisions that a for-profit boss can make. So you've got this weird thing up there called the board. Um, and then you've got the staff that you still serve and you've got your clients that you serve, but your client or your mission doesn't generate the revenue. That's why it's a nonprofit. There's, <laughs> it's, it's not, you're fixing stuff that doesn't pay for itself typically. So you have to have this fourth group, which is the donors. And most, most 
you know, most people don't even think of, they don't get into this to talk to donors. Like I said earlier, they get into it to fix problems. So it's these four different things pulling people apart. And when, um, when I, when I talk to nonprofit executive directors, I often say that being an executive director of a nonprofit is basically waking up every morning to get drawn and quartered. Because the board has their demands, the staff has their demands, the mission has their demands, and the board donors don't understand any of it. We have to learn how to communicate with them too. <laughs> so, oh wow, yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's I guess it's a wonder that nine out of ten still feel like they have some confidence. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my gosh. So, um, why is it then that so many nonprofit leaders struggle with that doubt, or how do they struggle with that their doubt? Aren't aren't the by the time they're in leadership, they're supposed to be all confident, right? Right. You'd think that, <laughs> wouldn't you? you think you, and I think part of the problem is that we aren't, I, I don't know if there's a lack of, of tra- I, well, it's not acceptable or appropriate for, for uh, leaders to be hot messes. That is not a, yep. a, a good leadership style. It doesn't instill confidence in your staff or the people <laughs> that you serve or the people that invest in what you do. Um, so it looks like these other leaders have it all figured out. But um, I, I had this privilege of uh, working with Dana McConnell here in Greenville, South Carolina, a couple of years ago for our state association. We did a, a panel of uh, new executive directors that were three to five years into their leadership. And it was all of people, it was supposed to be people that wanted to be executive directors. It packed, it was a standing room only breakout. It was really interesting. Um, but I thought, I, so we were talking about the struggles because as one of my mentors said, the view is different from the captain's chair. When you get into the senior leadership position, you realize, oh my goodness, the people before me weren't necessarily the idiots I thought they were. They have other considerations that they have to deal with. Like a lot of nonprofit executives don't understand that fixing the, doing the mission isn't their job anymore. Facilitating the mission is. So they have to spend up to 30% of their time grooming their board and, and orienting their board on how to be board members because no board member wakes up in the morning wanting to be an idiot. They just don't know what to do. And so if we don't tell them, it's our fault that we don't, we're not sharing the expectations. Uh, and then, so, so I, I thought I was going to, we had this great breakout session and I thought I was going to send this lob, you know, lob a softball to kind of do a happy ending to this. And I looked at this group <laughs> of this panelists and I said, okay, so at what point in your process did you start sleeping through the night? And there was a pause. And then each of the panelists kind of looked at each other and they started talking amongst themselves. Did you start? Are you sleeping through the night yet? Because yeah. people don't. Yeah, <laughs> running a nonprofit or running a, sm- a small business anyway is a lot of sleepless nights. You you have yeah. all. It's, there's something about two to four in the morning for many of us where our our guard is down and our ability to bit fill ourselves with busyness is gone, and it's just fear. Um, making making payroll, paying bills, um, losing a grant, losing a contract, whatever it is. Um, and so it was really, it was like, oh shoot, I, I'm usually a really good facilitator and I kind of really flubbed that one. So <laughs> I quickly tried to come up with a good softball. But I think part of the reason that they, they wrestle with that is that you think everybody else has it together and we don't. We're all trying to make this up as we go. And it's not that we're being disingenuous or inauthentic. It's just that we're trying to do the best with what we have. Um, and the, what we have been trained in classrooms and on team athletic teams, if any, I wasn't on the athletic teams, they had to create special teams for people that couldn't play athletics (laughs) like me so I could get my PE credit, but (laughs) athletic teams, uh, classrooms, even in your job, you get graded and rewarded for having the answers as a senior leader. You don't anymore because that's micromanaging. 
Yeah. Um, you get graded and, and your job is to create the cast the vision and at least give some sort of sense of where we're going, even if you don't know exactly how to go. But most leaders want to know exactly how to go because that's how they've been doing everything else. They have a curriculum in college. They have, yeah, all sorts of details. So um, that is incredibly uh, doubt or that really hits at your confidence because you don't know where you're going. You don't know how you're going to get there. Um, and you think that all your staff is looking for you for those answers and you don't see that the other leaders are struggling with that too. Yeah. Yeah. In your book, you broke that, that journey down or, or where people get stuck. You use these four stages or four mm. quadrants. Can you, can you outline those for our listeners? I love that... to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because uh, what, what I found in doing the, all these interviews, Tammy, is that uh, it doesn't just apply to leadership. People are telling, this applies to my, my role as homeschool mom. This applies to my role as, uh, you know, it, all the different areas, like people are like this, my, my journey and other parts of my life too. Yeah. So the four quadrants are the, um, it's a, uh, if you're drawing this on a piece of paper, please don't, if you're driving or in a treadmill, yeah. but uh, <laughs> the, the vertical axis is the confidence axis where you have confidence at the top and unsure at the bottom. And the horizontal axis is the inputs axis. We have external on the left and internal on the right. Most of us, I, I, my, my, uh, premises or my uh, observation is most of us only get half the map. This is the entire leadership map. We only get the external half where the first quadrant is the, uh, the observed quadrant where we're copying what we've seen done. We're given some level of leadership. We're given some role of authority. And so we just do what we've seen other people do. And shockingly, that doesn't work for us. <laughs> <laughs> that takes a hit at our confidence. Um, it's sort of like when it, it worked for that other person, the a classic example is the, the gregarious extroverted leader um, being followed by or give, giving a, an introvert um, authority. The introvert uh, it, unreflectively will just think that they have to be management by walking around and talking to people and, you know, high-fiving and all. And it, they don't, they're shocked when it totally drains them because that's not their style. It doesn't fit them but they think they must be broken. So their confidence plummets and they go into the second stage or the second quadrant, which is the experiment quadrant where you start looking for fixes. All right, what's wrong with me? I'm broken. And our systems train that, you know, it's not, it, congratulations on getting an 86 on your test. It's where are the other 14 points. So, I mean, it's, yeah. it's so much in our culture, but we go to the podcast, we get the certifications, we look at the webinars, we go to the conferences, we get our degrees, we look for whatever the external validation and proof is that we kind of know what we're doing. Um, but we all the time know that we don't. So, uh, you know, we look at a book and it says this system changed my life. It was amazing. And we read it and maybe only 80% of it applies to us or even only 10%. And rather than saying, okay, good, I'll take the, the, I had another mentor that said, eat the chicken, spit out the bones. You know, <laughs> rather than just eating the chicken and then t discarding the stuff that doesn't help, we, we look at, we focus on what doesn't help. I'm like, why am I such, so, so inept that I can't even get that last 20% or I can't get the full 90%. What, what's wrong with me? And so we racked in that second stage with lurching from system to system, trying to find a fix. And um, what I find, Tammy, is that many leaders have a long trail of success behind them at that point. They, and many leaders stay their entire career until retirement. If they do retire, it lurching for, with this kind of incredible imposter syndrome and self-doubt. Um, but everybody else around them sees all the success in their past and thinks they can do no wrong. Of course, they're going to do this. But the leader themselves doesn't know how they're going to accomplish, you know, take the next hill or do the next project. That's where doubt can be the gift. 
doubt can be uh, forcing you to get counseling and uh, therapy and stuff, which is great. We have wonderful, wonderful tools now, but it can also be the invitation to consider the internal cues that we've been told not to pay attention to the other half of the map. We're told that, you know, don't bring your, you know, don't bring your personal life to work. Um, emotions are subjective. We're supposed to be rational and logical and just look at the hard data. But what we find in leadership is that we need to take all of it into consideration. So when we move into the third quadrant of leadership, which is the analyze quadrant, we're able to start looking at ourselves personally or our organizations or our teams. But personally, we're able to look at what are the differences? Why, why are these things consistently not working for me? And, you know, am I, hard, am I extrovert or introvert? Am I, um, do I have different abilities? Do I have, what are the stories am I telling myself? How am I setting my goals? Am I including all of my person in my goals or am I including just one aspect of myself and my goals? And as we start building on those, our confidence starts to rise because we start realizing, oh, well, I may be out of step with the rest of the, the sector, but I'm still accomplishing the things that we set out to do. Uh, and that's where we start moving up back up into the fourth quadrant or the fourth stage of leadership, which is the focused leader. Not that it's peace filled. It's still, we're still <laughs> on a planet with billions of human beings like us. So we're, there are still going to be a lot of issues and problems and changes and, and whatever, but it's focused because we know the full map. We can look at all four quadrants. We can see where do I need to go next? Do I need to find a mentor or a coach to, to learn from? Or do I need to learn? A, do I need a certification? Do I need to get some data? Do I need to have my database and analyzed? That's really helpful stuff to know. Or is it, you know, as opposed to, you know, the, one of the big things I think with the doubt can be instead of just beating yourself up for being broken, it may be, you know, what if you change that kind of inner voice to, to reframe it as what if I'm perfect for this position? What if my skill set and wiring is perfect for this position? What if my organization is exactly what the sector needs right now, the perspective the sector needs? I don't see it around me. I can't benchmark my way to this, which benchmarking is really just kind of institutionalized uh, mediocrity. It's not excellence <laughs> at all. It makes you feel good. It's like the, nobody got fired for doing something that they did last year, uh, but they go out of business for doing that because they're still losing donors all yep. over the place or they're still <laughs> losing their staff. Yep. So yeah, so the, I love those four stages and and I find that the the people I love working with are the people that are on the verge of or deep into the, into the process of the quadrant three leadership where they're really... It's scary to ask this, Tammy. It's really scary because you want to look to your board like you know what you're doing. And the board hired you to kind of know what you're doing. Um, and so you're, you're really wanting to, or your department leaders, your senior leaders, you, you're supposed to have some level of expertise. Yeah. Um, and to figure out why things are different um, is not, we, we don't yet have a good grid work for that. I, I see a lot of positive things happening uh, in our culture that will change that. But for right now, it's still a very scary journey but that's where so much of the fruit and, and productivity is released. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that the, where the pain is, but the opportunity as well. I've seen people struggle in those situations where they're trying to lead, mm. but, but using the style that isn't really authentic to them, like you mentioned. And uh, I felt that my, that myself too, uh, you mm -hmm. talked about in your book about the importance of hardwiring or yeah. not the but the concept yeah. and, and you give it a different spin. Can you tell us a little bit more about the types of hard wiring and, and knowing about them and how I that can help us? How many hours do we have? Yeah. <laughs> People are going to be on their treadmills for hours and hours. Oh no. <laughs> Pit move, shut up. No. Um, so, um, 
the, the I love hardwiring because I think this is what there's two kind of ready entrances to quadrant three. One is looking at our values and what we hold dear um, and being really explicit about that. And the other is looking at our hardwiring, which is helpful because most of the hardwiring has assessments of some sort attached to it. So there feels like there's that external validation of an internal journey, uh, which helps us translate into the quadrant three. So the way that hardwiring, most of us think of only hard, hardwiring one way, but there's actually a hardwiring stack. Uh, of ability hardwiring, behavior hardwiring, and motivation hardwiring. Most people only look at the behavior hardwiring, which can be incredibly helpful. That's the DISC kind of personality um, study. The I think Clifton Strengths Finder may be this way too. I'm not, I'm not certified in that, so I don't speak to that. But I, I've loved doing that particular assessment. But like DISC, you're you're either advanced, fast-paced, or or more reserved. You're task-centered or people-centered, and it's the way you behave which is incredibly helpful because as a leader or as a fundraiser, you can look at people and you can say, oh, well, they're talking really quickly. Maybe I need to pick up my pace to kind of speak their dialect. Um, or they're talking really much more. They're actually thinking before they speak. Maybe I need to dial it down. So I don't look like I'm just kind of trying to run something over, or push something through on them. I'm just, let me just adapt to their style. Um, where what we don't normally think of in the hardwiring though, in our own personal journey is our ability hardwiring, which I love. Have you heard of the Highlands abilities battery? Yes. In your book. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I love this. I had a coach. I, one of the other oh. weird things is I had coaches throughout part of, you know, part of my early career and I had a, um, a life coach that introduced me to this and what, if you do enough of these assessments, you can kind of skew the number, you know, where the questions yeah. are going and you can kind of become whatever you want to be. There's that, <laughs> that ability to warp it. The Highlands ability battery doesn't give you that at all. It is three hours of seemingly meaningless tasks done under time pressure. Uh, and it's just how quick, how well do you do these tasks? And you get a score on those for 19 different abilities. There's the, there's the first one I should say is introvert extrovert. And that's the first one that feels like all the others. Would you rather go read a book or go to a movie? Well, I don't know. It depends on the book. It depends on who's going to be at the movie, you know, yeah. all that. but all the other 18 are objective. Like, do you hear this pitch or not? You know, do you, there's a picture of stuff and then there's a picture removed, like the highlights magazines at the dentist. Um, you know, what, what's, what are the objects that were removed? Um, all sorts of tests like that, that you can't thwart. It's just, and anybody could do these with enough time, which is how our life is. Most of us learn to adapt and develop skills, but we don't know where we're flexing and adapting. And so this helps you figure out, oh, that's why. Like my mother took this when I was doing certification 20 years ago. And she realized that my, my, there are five level, five ways that we take in information, but our education system only focuses on two. It's only speech or reading. Um, but there's design, there's kinesthetic learning, and there's also um, numbers memory that, that is tested in this test where you just can remember the phone number of your home growing up and, you know, pin codes and stuff. Um, so the, all of those together, my mom took it and she realized uh, she was low on all of them. But all, as I was growing up, she was going through her bachelor's of science. She was getting her master's and she was doing her postgrad studies at Harvard. So she wasn't a slouch. But she realized, oh my goodness, I'm not stupid. I, it just takes me longer to do this. And this is why I am reading the notes as I'm listening to the lecture and I'm doodling in the margin because I'm compounding all of the different learning styles. Mm -hmm. I just didn't know that. I thought I was an idiot because you and your sister and your dad can just hear something once and quote it forever. So um, it, it was so helpful. So the ability hardwiring is one of them that is just, it never should be a label for, I can't do this. It's just, how do I do this more? How do I do this better? 
Um, and, and so th that's one thing with any of these assessments, do not let them be able to confine you and do not inflict them on your staff as a, you can't possibly do this because you're a blank. It's not that it's to help develop capacity or capacity, um, productivity, but also grace and empathy for the fact that not everybody sees the world the same. So is it all right if I go to the third one, I'm, you can yes. tell I'm really excited about this. Oh, I, I love these. Keep I feel going. Like, thank you for coming to my <laughs> TED talk. You know, I feel like I'm monologuing right now. So, um, so the third one, so we've got abilities, which is the Highlands ability battery, uh, behavior, which is like the disc, uh, which the disc has been around a version of it since the ancient Greeks. We can trace it back millennia. So wow. in, through different cultures. So it's really powerful. Uh, the, um, Third one is the motivation hardwiring. So if you have, think about behaviors. You have three people that are hard driven and task goal centered, whatever. You may, based on their behavior, try to communicate with each of the three of them the same. But what I love about the motivation hardwiring is that it shows what stories, it gives a clue on what stories they may be operating out of. One of the people may be operating out of, I want to always look successful in a group and I just want our organization to look successful. So if you're talking to that, the other two may not be, that's not, may not be how they define success. The, you know, one of the other two may be wanting to just see new things and experience new opportunities. And the third one may be just wanting to protect their clan. Not, success doesn't matter. It's just, I don't want any harm to come to my, my, the people, my team or myself. So the tool that I use for this is called the Enneagram. Have you, are you familiar with that at all? Yes. Yes. Okay. The, uh, I, I used it for 30 years in my own personal growth, uh, just to see where, where the reflective, reflexive, like, um, where the knee jerk sort of reactions that I, I do, uh, and then how do I take a step back from those and, and ponder, why am I doing, why am I responding this way? Uh, and, and for me, the Enneagram was incredibly helpful in showing those patterns to myself, um, it wasn't until I read Beatrice Chestnut's book, The Nine Types of Leadership, that I started realizing how it can fit into leadership as well. Um, and all nine types can be good leaders, but we just will lead differently. So for the in the example of the three hard-driven types, the type three, so for those of you that aren't familiar with the Enneagram, there are nine types of uh, personality types, there are nine stories that people operate in the world through that it's sort of, this is how I will be successful in the world. But there, it, it has... Uh, it distills them into nine separate stories that we can see going way back also to ancient Greek uh, and, and ancient ancient traditions like uh, the Odyssey. Going when Odysseus is going home, the places he stops are exactly in the same pattern as uh, the Enneagrams nine eight seven six five four three two one. So if you go in reverse, he's the peoples he encounters are each of those personality types. Dante's Inferno has this also has each of the personality types of the Enneagram kind of shown in the levels of the Inferno. So. Um, we think there's an ancient tradition, but we've heard it in the last uh, couple of centuries for, by South American and, um, and mid-European uh, teachers, which I also love. It's not just a North American thing. It's yeah. global. So um, the hard-driven person, one of them, the type three, would be wanting to look successful and failure is almost a moral sin. You don't admit failure. Um, and so that's, you, you need to know that if that's somebody operating out of that, you'd want to, it's helpful to be aware of that, uh, particularly for yourself. If you're, if that's your, your predilection that we have to always be succeeding. Well, 80% of the people that you ask money for are going to say no. If the, if you need one prize, five prospects for every one gift, there's an 80% built you know, re rejection rate, at least at that level, yeah. you're going to be failing. And you've got to get your team okay with that. You've got to set it up for not everything's going to be a home run. I had a type three leader once tell me as a fundraiser, they were the leader of the organization. 
I don't want to do this relationship development stuff. I just want you to set the ball, the basketball on the top of the rim. And I just want to come in and, and get the, yeah, tip it into the, get the basket. I just want to come in for the, you know, to score the points. I don't want to have to do the work. Well, that's malarkey. I mean, that was just hubris. And, and there was a lot of other issues, Yeah. but I see that a lot with leaders because they just don't want to be bothered with that. Well, sorry, you're in a nonprofit. The revenue that's generated, at least part of it is, is predicated on your building those relationships. So get over yourself or get out of nonprofits. Um, Ooh, I got a little, ah. <laughs> a little spicy there. Sorry about that. Um, but so that was that dialect, but it, there are other dialects. And, and I think when you start, if you start responding to somebody out of one story and you realize, oh, maybe they don't see failure as a bad thing. And maybe there's something I can learn from the fact that maybe, you know, iterative things or testing things out is helpful. Um, the, that can be good. Yeah. You know, the Enneagram's motivation. I could, I'm going to stop now because I'm, I'm going to, I could go into a whole Enneagram talk. Oh. If you want to, if you, uh, if anybody listening Googles, uh, increasing influence and Mark Pittman, you'll see a talk that I gave on the ways that you can, what are the nine types are. Uh, I also found a blog post that, uh, that referenced them with parks and rec characters. So if that's helpful for people, and then, <laughs> oh, that'd be good. And then how you can increase influence and in each it speak the dialect of each of the nine types in each of them. Oh, that's great. Okay. We'll put that in the show notes. Too. Okay, cool. That's great. <laughs> uh, yeah. Learn just seeing that there's three different types, like you said, besides the behavioral one, it's just so rich to, to learn that about yourself. And I, I've always said, I want to be in a position where it fits my superpowers naturally and understanding what Absolutely. that is. Yeah. So the, another one that's helped me in my nonprofit, well, I was in a nonprofit career and I've been coaching uh, nonprofit leaders and for-profit leaders for 20 years. So it's, I've done both, but uh -huh. most of my employed life has always been major gift fundraising at different levels, different, different organizations. Um, but one of them early on was when I was going through coach training, I did this thing called the values inventory. And it was remarkable to me that I'd never questioned what I valued. It was just part of how I, my, my operating system, how I oriented in the world. But when I circled independence as one of my values, um, it became really crystallizing for me as I looked at different positions that I don't necessarily want to be in positions that don't allow me to be independent. Or I need to know that this will be a stress. I need to be part of a team. It's Ahead more of time. for their yeah. objective, mm -hmm. but there'll be stress in this. And I've just got to, I need to be, I'm consciously making this choice. Um, right. So we, when I do this with nonprofit folks, this is kind of telling and chilling too, Tammy. People don't necessarily, you can do it with yourself, so, uh, the values inventory. And then you can also look at your organization and try to figure out what the values are of your organization that can be a real underlying stress because your value, your organization may value or your team may value things that you don't. And that's where you can also then at least once it's, it's uh, illuminated, once the light's shining on it, you can at least make a decision about it. Do I want to live with this or is this something that's intolerable? But I just find it incredibly helpful to be able to know what my values are. And like you said, I want to try to try as much as I can to position myself in places that will allow me to be all of me. Uh, all of you naturally and then then you have so much more energy and time to oh my to work on on the other stuff because you you you, you center yourself where where you in, in a way and, and surround yourself with what so you do naturally so i had this one so one, one experience as a major gift fundraiser at a prep school 
I thoroughly loved my job. Now I was a faculty on a boarding school campus. So I had student responsibilities and I had to sit down dinners, but I was traveling a lot. Uh, that was part of my job. And that's part of what I found from the, from the uh, Highlands Ability Battery with my rhythm memory. I needed to not be at a desk. So that's why I never tried to become a manager of major gift officers because I saw most of those people get really frustrated. They liked the major gift work. And the only way up in the, in the job ladder was to become a manager of major gift people, but they, they removed themselves from the travel and from the donor conversations and they're managing people to do it. And that became a lot really frustrating and, and bad for a lot of people. Um, so I tried to avoid that, but anyway, I thoroughly loved my job. I was just <laughs> in my zone. This was so cool. And I was with another faculty member. We were going to go to some student hiking, camping adventure thing. So we were going to the store to get some, some stuff. And he asked me about my latest trip. And I grew up thinking that I couldn't really enjoy myself because if I was enjoying myself, it wasn't really work. I mean, like if people are paying me, yeah. it's not yeah. like, it's yeah. not, it's going to be hard and it's going to be uphill both ways. So, <laughs> so no. I, I tried to really downplay what I was doing and you know, the hardships of yeah. travel isn't really sexy. It's, it's boring and it's, it's stress filled. We get to the mall and the guy looked over at me and he said, you really enjoy what you do, don't you? <laughs> and I kind of giggled. <laughs> I kind of giggled. Grown man giggling. It's like, yeah, I really do. <laughs> and what was transformative for me, Tammy, was he said, I would never want to do that. You go into situations where you never know what the outcome is going to be. You don't even know necessarily exactly what you're going to say or how you're going to answer the questions that come up. And you're all over the place. You don't know if the plane's going to even be there. Um, I want, I love being in my classroom. I love knowing what my curriculum is. I love knowing where I can flex if, if things need to flex. Uh, I love having, the, you know, that installation and, and the expectation set. Um, and for me, that was one of your, similar to what you were saying about just getting to be in your zone and getting to be fully you and, and how that releases that productivity was it was freeing for me to realize not everybody wants to do what I'm doing. So maybe that means there are things that I don't want to do that some people would love to do. <laughs> so right. Can find those right. So the yeah. world is just waiting to put these pieces together. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> Let's find those people. <laughs> and let, let me try to not make it sound like they're doing the really stupid work. Right. <laughs> right. It's not to they, them. Yeah. they really enjoy this. <laughs> they do. I bet a lot of uh, nonprofit executives feel that about fundraisers. I don't want to do that. So I want to find people that actually enjoy yeah. this stuff. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So there's just so much of that in your book. And then there's, there's, there's more, I want to touch on the role stories play in all of this. And I know we don't have much time, yeah. but, but if you could, I, it was really insightful to me, like the stories you tell when you meet the, the stories that you like and, and the stories you hear, maybe just shed a little light on, on that. So part of what, uh, if we have our phones or our computers, there's a different operating system for, for our phones. It could be Android or, or iOS, Apple operating system. Human beings, the, the studies that have been done in so many different sectors make it really clear that human beings operating system is, is story. That is how we are operating. Um, that's how we program ourselves. But again, we tend to go through our world life mechanically, mechanistically just doing stuff and not thinking about the stories we're telling ourselves. So when, as we start a couple of the ways to, to one quick way, and then um, an exercise people may be able to do one quick way is to just start thinking about when you used to go to conferences or as we emerge out of the <laughs> pandemic and start going back to them, um, or when you're meeting new people, what are the stock stories you tell to kind of help them position yourself 
in their universe? Uh, what are your go-to laugh lines? What are your go-to stories about yourself? Or what are the stock stories you tell yourself? Um, things like, I'm never good at remembering names. I only remember faces. Those types of things are, are actually programming how you orient in the world. And if you start getting more uh, self-reflective about them, you can at least have an, uh, make the decision of, is that something I want to keep going with or not? Now, my friend Jessica Sharp here in Greenville, South Carolina, has this amazing, she has Sharp Brain Consulting, she does this amazing work on, with people on their, their, how their brains impact their staff and their teams, um, but the, how brain science does. But one of the things she has them do, and I talk about this in The Surprising Gift of Doubt too, is uh, you grab a legal pad and just for 24 hours or three days or a week, non-critically, just write down the things that you're saying to yourself. What's your self-talk? Uh, and, and just log it down, good or bad, just put it on this piece of paper. And at the end of that time, look at the paper and ask yourself one question. Would I talk to a friend like this? And if the answer is no, which it is for most of us, the invitation is maybe we should treat ourselves like more like friends because we're the only us that we've got. Yeah. Yeah. And we're stuck with us. <laughs> we're stuck with us for the, yeah. For life. It's, it's like a life sentence to be ourselves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so might as well. um, and, and it's a shocking though, how, how much toxicity and how much self-sabotaging we bring to ourselves. Um, it, it, an example would be for, for major gift fundraisers or executive directors that are talking to donor prospects, picking up the phone and telling yourself, I'm probably bugging this person right now. I'm probably interrupting them. I'm probably yeah. a hassle yeah. is giving yourself this negative scripting and your brain is kind of like your own personal Google service. Whatever you put in the search bar, it's going to try to produce those results. So it'll bring back all the stories of, oh yeah, remember yeah. when you bugged this person? Remember when that person slammed the phone on you? Remember that person that yelled at you really angrily? But if we start choosing it, we're lying to ourselves by saying this is probably negative. We're lying. We're telling ourselves a story that is just as false as telling ourselves the other side of, I bet I'm calling Tammy at the perfect time. I bet yeah. this is the most exciting time for her. I bet she's just <laughs> wondering, what do I do with all this money I have? How can I give it away? And, and if you can at least tell yourself that and laugh at yourself, maybe you'll move yourself to a neutral place. So you're not giving emanating negative stories, but you're also training your subconscious, the Google search, your internal Google search, you're changing the algorithm so that it's now thinking about, oh, that's right. I did talk to Evelyn that time and she was super excited. She had just come into an inheritance and she didn't know what she was going to do. Or I talked to so-and-so and they love hearing from us. They love the stuff that we do. So you start being able to, to shift your emotions uh, just because you're being aware, more aware of and self-reflective about your stories. Yeah. Oh man, there's so much in your book and, and I just want to encourage people uh, to, we'll put that in the show notes, how to go to your website and learn more about that. This has been a very interesting conversation and I thank I you so much. For it. So thank you for giving me the space to like, <laughs> just go. Talk this is great. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So talking, uh, about your stories and, and all that, I have one last question for you, Mark. Okay. I read your bio and I found that we have one thing in common here. You also love singing hits of the eighties in the car <laughs> with your kids. I love it. Well, Can you, I well, love singing them, but I embarrass my kids because what I call kids. singing yeah. isn't necessarily musical. It's <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you can tell the songs that I taught exactly. my kids and the songs that my, my wife did. Cause my wife, <laughs> the, the, they sing the songs that my wife taught them there. Uh, yeah. Anyway, but thank you for that. 
Okay, so last question. Yeah. Can you share and leave us with one of your favorites? Mm. Perhaps even one that you could sometimes get your kids to join in. Ooh. <laughs> so Don't Stop Believing was really fun. We uh, we did that at the end of a nonprofit storytelling conference once. And uh, if you're going to karaoke that, just be careful because there's a long guitar solo. And so I started doing a Marty McFly because I didn't know what to do. I had picked up the air guitar. And so I started kind of crawling across on my back on the stage because it's just, it's a stupid karaoke song if you're going to do that. But the one that comes to mind that I think my kids might really enjoy is um, when I get to do karaoke, I've only done karaoke two or three times. And one of them was in Chicago at this internet conference where we went to this dive bar and did karaoke. It was part of the tradition but one of the members of Twisted Sister, JJ French, was part of this conference, and oh. we—he had never wanted to do karaoke, uh, but he came up and did it, joined us. So the whole conference, these poor locals in this community were like, "Who the heck are these weird techno blogger jerks that are taking over our bar?" But JJ French saying, "We're not going to take it." It was Twisted Sisters. We're not going to take it, and um, and we all got to sing backup for him. So that's probably the one that oh my, <laughs> my kids gosh, would also that's epic. To Oh, that's great! It was. I was like, I'm hanging up my karaoke yep. mic right now. Drop I can't the mic. talk yeah. this. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, Mark, it's been so enjoyable. Uh, thank you again for your time, and we wish you and your book the great success it deserves. And and thank you so much for helping nonprofit leaders understand the surprising gift of Dow and how, mm. how they could use that to and help themselves, help the missions and, and, and their impact. And, and so we wish you the best and I look forward to working with you in the future. And, and we covered so many topics. We can make a, a podcast on each. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much. All right. Take care. So that was our conversation. A big thank you to Mark for coming on the podcast. Check out his website, concordleadershipgroup.com, and his new book, The Surprising Gift of Doubt. Links can be found in the episode notes. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can look for announcements on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn by following Foundant Technologies. So from everyone at Foundant Technologies, thanks for listening. We hope you found it helpful, and we can't wait to connect with you again on our next Coffee Talk 